Hey there, this is Will Gadara, and I'm thrilled that you are listening. This podcast kicks off our November calendar, where we're focusing on the idea of collaboration. As we think about the things that we need to do to not only survive this crisis, but to thrive on the other side of it, collaboration was an obvious one to include in our five-month schedule. Collaboration has always been a huge part about how I approach the restaurants that I've been a part of. But I think more importantly, now than ever, it's essential in our ability to navigate through this. Collaboration is about recognizing that no leader is intended to have all of the answers in normal life, but especially right now. No one could expect anyone to have all the answers to this. We are navigating through times and situations we've never encountered before. And if leaders can recognize that not only are they not meant to have all the answers, but rather their role is to harness the collective brain power of their entire team such that the team can come up with those answers together. Well, that's what makes them great leaders. And that's what makes those teams extraordinary teams. These days, we don't know where we're going to find the great idea that's going to help our businesses get through this and perhaps be even more successful on the other side of this. But one thing we do know is that the collective creativity of many will always be so much greater than that of just a few. And so for this entire month, we're going to talk to people who understand the power of collaboration, who have experienced it, who have struggled with it, who have thrived with it in hopes that we can all recognize that whether we're turning towards our team, whether we are leaning in to our communities, whether we are just recognizing the simple fact that we will always be better together. Collaboration is very, very important. I'm so excited to have you here. Welcome back to Weekly Specials. It's the Weekly Specials. You do, 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 do. Weekly Specials. Weekly Specials. Do, 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 do. The Weekly Specials. I'm so excited to have this next guest on the show. He is a joy to talk to. He's incredibly smart. He's a mentor to so many. And he's been one of the main forces behind some of my favorite TV shows and movies, like Rounders, Ocean 13, and perhaps most importantly for me, the hit show Billions with his longtime partner, David Levin. Brian Koppelman, I'm just so excited to have you here. Thank you for joining me. Well, I didn't even get past the first part of the sentence of the email before saying, yes, you're a dear friend. And, you know, I love your spirit during these trying times, man. And any, any way that I can be with you to talk and also just help you in your mission is something, as you know, that I'm always down for. No, I appreciate it, man. Well, people are just listening to us, but this is also the first time I've seen you in months and months. And so I guess we zoom, you know, we did a zoom, like a zoom dinner or drinks with (laughs) Christina and Amy at the beginning of the pandemic. I guess I haven't seen like a month in and I think I haven't seen you since then. Yeah. And then everyone got zoomed out. So everyone listening, Brian, Brian's here because we think there's just so much we can learn in our industry from people who do other things. And okay, obviously, Brian's the co-creator of Billions, which is my favorite show on television. I think it's a lot of people's favorite show on television. Thank you. But he's also, he's a restaurant guy. And so he like, he, he fits halfway in the outsider, insider category. And when I introduced him at the Welcome Conference, because he, he spoke, uh, he did a, a conversation with Seth Godin. What I said about him was that if aliens were to land on the planet, and only watch Billions, they would have perhaps a better understanding of the New York restaurant scene than any other like trove of information out there. Just real quick, like, how did you get so into restaurants? Where did it start for you? Well, I love talking about this with, with you especially because of your love for not only food, but for the entire experience of going to restaurants. And Well, I'll answer this in a way that I haven't ever before because it just occurred to me that the root of, there are a few different answers, Will. One is living in New York from, I grew up on Long Island, but but you moved to, I moved to New York right out of college and restaurants and understanding restaurants, it's a real currency. It's really important. And understanding the language of restaurants is is really important in, in New York. And 
uh, I was always fascinated by the way that restaurants communicated. I've always loved studying symbols in that way. It's, and, and so I've loved the way restaurants present themselves. I've always been fascinated by that. Why is this restaurant and that restaurant that serves, you know, at that time, like let's say in the late eighties, you know, why is Pino's restaurant that serves squid ink pasta doing such better business than the restaurant that serves squid ink pasta one avenue over? And what were the things that Pino was doing to make people want to come to his restaurant over the other? That was always like, you know, a fascinating thing as a young person with wide eyes in New York, just taking that in. But the root of it all has to be that my dad was somebody, he's my, I say was because it was when I was a kid. My dad's still alive. He's 80 and he's great. When my dad was a kid, he, he always tells this story that he hadn't, uh, he, he was raised lower middle class. They would get Chinese food in once a week, but you know, it was egg foo young Chinese food. And he never had pizza. He never ate in a restaurant until he was 17. He never had pizza until he was 17. And so for him, going out to dinner was a magical thing. It was something deprived from him as a kid. And his love for knowing, hey, there's this amazing spot that has a burger, or there's this place that has the greatest slice, and, and this place has a bagel that is going to knock you out. So I would love going on missions with my father to find that stuff when I was a boy. But also, there was an Italian restaurant that still exists in Ozone Park called Don Pepe's. And yeah. it was a restaurant with lines around the block. It was a no menu joint, really. You know, you would look on the wall or they would tell you it, uh, you know, they served rustic wine, like in a glass, back then, like in a, gl a little short, you know, a little short juice glass or, yeah, yeah. or whatever. And my father had done a favor for the, and it was um, back then, I mean, it was very clearly you know, an organized crime controlled kind of a joint. It's legendary place. The pasta was amazing. When you were a boy, you know, my mom was a, who I, I loved, a, was, you know, she cooked, but she wasn't a great cook. And uh, the restaurants near where we lived, closer to where we lived, there was no romance to them. You would go out, there was, uh, they were just, you know, the Italian restaurants, they would just throw some basically spaghetti on, on a plate. You go to Don Pepe's and like the garlic cut through, but not only, and, the pasta was cooked al dente and you're 11 or 12 and suddenly learning to tell the difference and you eat pasta that's al dente. No one told me that's supposed to be better, but suddenly it's like, why is this so fucking good? You know, what is this? This just has olive oil on it. This is just olive oil, like garlic and a little crushed red pepper. Why is it so amazing? And then the way that they conducted themselves at that restaurant, the big tables of men who would laugh in the corner and you knew who those guys were and the cops who would come in and had their own table. And the, all of the sort of politics of the place. And then my father had done a favor for the owner of the restaurant. Who's By the way, you already said it's mob run. And then you just said, my father did a favor. <laughs> well, it's a funny favor. The, the owner of the restaurant, my father was uh, in the music business. And the owner of the restaurant said to my dad, my son wants to be a dancer. I want him to go to college. Can he come to your office? My dad didn't know the guy even knew. what You know, we were waiting on the lines always. My son wants to be a dancer. I kind of know who you are. I really, I think he should go to college. Can he come to your office? So my father says, sure, he can come to my office. So the kid comes to my dad's office, throws down a floor, comes with a girl and does like a tango and <laughs> says to my dad, you know, should I quit school and pursue this? And my father said, you know, I think college is a really good idea. And you can always dance through college, but like, I don't know that this dancing thing. So the kid says, thank you, goes back, goes to college. The next time we go to the restaurant, they spot us on the line. They walk us in through the kitchen. We went in through the kitchen the rest of my childhood. Every like Sunday good night, like good every Sunday night, we'd go out to Don Pepe's. They would wave us around, Big Mike with the giant cigar and Joey, the owner, and they would, we would come in through the kitchen and there would be a table waiting for us. And we ate, we paid to eat there. No, there was no food on the arm at that place. You weren't even getting, I mean, we weren't even getting a, a pasta. They weren't throwing you a dessert for free. But we got to walk in through the kitchen, man. And then we got to talk to Joe, the owner, maitre d' guy. And I just watched, I'm sure that this is the root of what was amazing, right? Because it was this outsider experience that became an insider experience. The food was amazing. It was a celebration there every night. Everyone inside that restaurant was having 
the time of their lives. Like if it was Sunday night and you were able to be at Don Pepe's in Ozone Park, you were right at the center of what your world was. And I think that that probably drew me to this idea of restaurants, of the value in knowing the difference between a good restaurant and one that's not as good, the value of making a personal connection with the people there, not necessarily so you could go through the kitchen, but so you could actually understand. You know, I remember when they would tell us about the poker games they played all night. They're like, so you could be on the inside with the people creating this atmosphere. And it was just something that got to me and I loved it. And I think it became, without any conscious thought, Will, you know how I am with chefs and restaurant people. I am just a part of their world. I want to be their friend. They want to be my friend. And I live very comfortably in, in that environment. I respect it. I respect yeah. it so much. Well, and, that, and you can feel that. By the way, I could feel that from your dad. I got the chance to serve him a couple of times at EMP Summer House. And anyone in the restaurant business knows how much more fun and fulfilling it is to serve people who... A, are just enjoying themselves, and B, respect what we do. It's just, it, it's just better. We enjoy it more. And honestly, yes. anyone listening who's seen Billions, okay, Billions is the first show to ever put restaurants on TV in a respectful way, to like not just use restaurants as a stage set, but to actually allow the restaurants to tell their story. And you, you did, you know, you had, we filmed at 11 Madison Park and at Nomad, you've done Momofuku Co., all these places, but... Like you also took New Yorkers on des- like journeys. I discovered restaurants on Billions that I never even knew of before. Oh, that's, that's great, man. Yeah, well, it's like if one of us finds a place that is meaningful to us for some reason, I love being able to celebrate. Look, you know, what a joy to be able to, I mean, I loved having you on, you're my friend, and, and, and I, you know how much I love Nomad and, and loved going there. But, but to me, to be able to feature someone like Ed Schoenfeld on the show, yeah. And Red Farm. Yeah. For what Ed's meant to New York dining. Now, that's not something, you know, he just says hello to the, one of the characters in the show. And to most people, that's just a guy in a restaurant. If you understand anything about New York food over the last 40 years, you understand the role that Ed has played. Yeah. And you understand what it means that he's still doing what he does. And so to have that little moment with the Pac-Man dumplings on the show and, and Ed Schoenfeld, it adds an amount of texture and color to the show. It's a way for Dave and me, David Levine, my partner, does all this. It's a way for us to, to give back to people who've been good to us. You know, I went the day Ed Schoen, and, and, and this part of it, you know, people listening, uh, I was tight with restaurant people before restaurant people had a reason to be tight with, you know, before there was a show. So like the day Ed opened Red Farm, we had been anticipating it because the downtown one was open. He was opening my neighborhood on the west side. and there at like 11 o'clock the first day he opened and, and sat down and started talking to him. And like you say, he recognized that we were there for the right reasons. Yeah. And we started talking and hanging out and we appreciated the stuff. And over time, that restaurant immediately exploded and we went there and, he, you know, at a certain, as you know how it works, uh, very shortly thereafter, he's like, well, here's how you, here, here's my phone number, if you think. And then you're respectful in the way that you handle that. You don't call that number at 7.30 on Saturday night and say, I'm coming over. <laughs> because you respect, like I would jam you that way. But basically, <laughs> but I mean, I don't think I ever did jam you. I would say I would jam you that way if I had to, but I never did. No, you never um, But I, I, you know, you don't, you don't take advantage of that. What you do is you're all in, in you're all part of this community together. And, and that's why for me, this moment, uh, part of the sadness of this moment is, watching my restaurant friends going through such a challenging time and, 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 and watching them navigate this uncertainty and, and insecurity. And I'm, uh, my heart goes out to everywhere, all in that, you know, uh, but restaurant people more, more than most. And, and I, I can't wait for the new version of the revitalized restaurant. Business. Yeah, no. I, and I think that's the case of all of us. And that's what we're trying to do with the welcome conference over this time is just, you know, this fundamental belief that if we get together through community, we're going to be stronger and have a greater chance to get through. We're talking this month about collaboration. And 
I'm super excited to talk to you about that. I think in a couple months, it's going to be vulnerability. I'm going to talk, I'm going to lean into vulnerability for one sec. So I was on your podcast, The Moment with Brian yeah, Cobble. Yeah. If you guys haven't listened to it, check it out. It's one of my favorites. And everyone has told me that of every podcast they've ever heard me on, the best one I've ever been on was yours because, okay, guys, Brian's a really, really good interview. So I'm like an interviewer. I'm a newer podcast guy. I'll be honest, I was like nervous to interview. You're my buddy, but I'm like, okay, I got to get my shit together yeah, of here. Of course, be prepared, yeah. <laughs> you got to prepare. Even when it's your friends, you got to prepare, dude. It is. But it just makes it easier for you to relax if you're prepared. You don't even have to go to your written down questions, but like it's good to have them there. Which is, by the way, always the case. It, like even in service, we always tell the staff that if they memorize every ingredient such that they never have to even try to remember it, then they can be their most fully realized selves at the table. Yeah. But so, okay, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of stuff I want to get into with collaboration and you, because it feels like a great majority of your career has been rooted in this idea. Yeah. And people, people know you for billions. Obviously, most people know you for rounders. A lot of people don't know you were in the music industry before that. Sure. And I'd love to go back there a little bit and maybe like tell us a little bit about that and then why you decided to, to cross over into writing. Well, as I said, my dad was in the business and I, so I, I knew the music business. I also, you know, I, I love music in such a deep way. Uh, it's so crucial to my I existence. And, you know, I had the good fortune of stumbling upon Tracy Chapman while I was at college and helped her get her first record deal and produced demos and, and worked on that album that had Fast Car on it. And so that, I did all that my senior year of college. Well, my senior year of college, we made the album. So I, I that leapfrogged me. <laughs> I just into, want to make sure everyone just heard that. Senior year of college, you discovered Tracy Chapman. Yeah. And um, sophomore year of college, I first saw her and we made the album senior year. And then I that led me into a good job at Electra Records in the record business. But part of what happened was I was avoiding my true calling, which was to tell stories, to be an artist, to be a writer, a creator. And it started to become incredibly painful, Will. I was 29 years old, and I distinctly remember being in an office uh, late at night alone. I had a four-month-old at home, and this was the key. Uh, our first child was born, and I, I thought, I want to tell my kids to chase their dreams, and I am not chasing my dream. I am an executive, and I'm supposed to be something else. And I thought, if I let this, this idea die, like any other death, it'll have toxicity. And that toxicity would ooze out of me onto the people I loved. The bitterness of not, you know, of giving up, of not trying something. And I was a blocked writer and couldn't do it. And it was in this, this flesh. I was sitting in my office. It was late at night. I was eating cheeseburgers and smoking cigarettes. I never smoked cigarettes till I was 29. I only smoked cigarettes for six months. Uh, but that, I, I looked at the cigarette, I looked at the cheeseburger, and I was like, something's got to fucking change because you can't live this way. And you'll be a dick and turn into the worst version of yourself. And so... Uh, I went and found Levine was tending bar at Girasole, uh, an Italian restaurant up on the east side, run by a great guy named Zoran. And um, we, I went down there and I said to Dave, like, I got to figure this out, man. He was trying to be a writer then too. And he's like, let's write a script together. You know, let's figure that out. But he also gave me this book, The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron. I started doing morning pages and soon was able to break free. Plus Amy, my wife, who you know well, had always said to me, you know, I think this music thing is like a pit stop on the way to what you're really going to do. And so she was incredibly supportive and I started waking up earlier. I didn't quit my job. I will say to people that quitting your job puts a tremendous amount of pressure on the thing that you're trying to do. And instead what I did was I just got up earlier. I worked a couple hours in the morning before going to work and just working those two hours in the morning, I felt so alive that it kind of springboarded me into the day. And it made it that the day it's itself, the stuff that was driving me crazy at work drove me much less crazy because I'd spent that two hours engaged in a way that made me feel really alive. And then after the movie, so, you know, Dave and I wrote Rounders that way. And then uh, that sold and another thing sold. And then I was able to quit my job because then I knew, well, I have some runway here. I have two, two or three years to see if I can really do this. And I owe it to myself to give it every shot. And then um, it turned out that David and I, you know, we figured it out. We were able to do it. And, and I have not looked back. I mean, I, I love music. I still write songs. I'm still engaged with people in the music business, but I've never regretted leaving the executive perch for becoming a creator, you know? Yeah. And we're going to talk about collaboration, I promise. But I just wanted to 
well, for me to hear that story again and for everyone, because I think one thing that's really inspiring and relevant for right now is there's a lot of people who feel like their career just had a big reset button pressed, right? Maybe people who built restaurants and did them for a long time, then they closed. And maybe they're not changing careers, but they feel like they're back to zero. They're back to the drawing board. And I just think it's inspiring when you hear a story of someone who later in life, now you're 29, you're still young, but like you were able to start something completely new. And I guess for people who are listening that feel like they put so much time into something and now they need to start over, you know? I'm really glad that you said that, Will, because I realized the way I told it now took a lot of the fear out of it. 29, I mean, I was turning 30. I had a four month, I was scared out of my mind. You know, I, I, I was, I felt old and I felt like, I might be crazy. You know, you always feel delusional when you're about to try something unconventional and, and new for you. And I had always suffered from ADHD and it was always hard for me to finish assignments. And, and now here I was thinking I could write something and, and find my way into an, an, a new business. And, and look, as you know, I've had various low points. Anyone who does what I do, uh, anyone who does your business too, like you have moments when you're really hot, moments when you're really cold and moments when the town salutes you and moments when the town forgets that you're alive. And so, you know, it, and these moments are scary, but all, all you can, my mindset has always been find a way to control the things you can control and then work really rigorously at them. So that like, if you're just working as hard as you possibly can at the things that you can control, yeah, I trust that the rest of it's going to sort itself out somehow, or I'll solve that next problem when I get to that next problem. You know, working, actually trying the hard thing makes me feel better and makes me feel like I'm making progress. And then as soon as I can tip into that, I'm able to, and you know, then others, I mean, practical shit like meditating and exercising. I do those things every day. And that's another part of it that really helps. It's keeping your physical body, especially in a time like this, everything you can do to keep your physical body solid is really important. Meaning, meaning, meaning doing cardio uh, exercise. You know, I do every single, I don't miss a day. And it really changes things. It helps to mitigate the impact of all the anxiety and the fear around all the things that you can't control. Because honestly, right now, there's a lot of those too. And so you got to lean into what you can. I, I love that. Okay, but collaboration. <laughs> I could just talk to you about a ton of different stuff. Tell me, like, I feel like it's almost, I think about collaboration and the things that I've done with other people, either partners or ideas that I've come up with people that work for me or ones that I came up with alongside people I worked for. But there's, it's almost like a first love. Can, like, what was one of the first meaningful collaborations? I mean, to be clear, there's people that write as individuals. You've written since the beginning of your writing career with a partner. You've embraced that. And so something showed you that that's what worked for you. Where did you learn that that's the right approach? Well, it just happened really naturally I, with, with David. You know, yeah, I've only written one movie on my own, Solitary Man, and then Dave and I directed that movie together. I would say I'm somebody who's always wanted to be in the room with people smarter and better than I am. And uh, I always felt like, well, hopefully I can add something to it. And that's the spirit with which I enter any kind of collaboration is like, I'm going to come with my full self. I'm going to try really hard to bring the best to me. I'm going to always, every word out of your mouth, I'm going to assume is coming from the best place, the place of us both trying to solve this problem together, both trying to make something great, all of us trying to make something great. And and if, if I think you approach collaborations with openness and with fallibility and really trying not to engage your ego, these things are not easy to do. But if you do those things, you have a chance to do something really special and, and, and really magical. And um, for David and me, it was just natural. We had started writing stuff together in college. It didn't go all the way, but we had always bounced ideas back and forth. And I, I, if it weren't for Dave, I, I wouldn't have a writing partner. It's just that Dave is an amazing talent, incredibly smart, incredibly kind, a great writer, great, great, you know? And, and so it, it always made sense to me. I also have always been fascinated by brilliant collaborations. You know, I love the Coen brothers. David does too. I, you know, always liked the guitar player, lead singer thing. Um, always yeah. really like love, you know, Michael Stipe and 
uh, Peter Buck and uh, David Lee Roth and uh, Edward Van Halen. I mean, that shit always spoke to me, Keith and Mick, you know. So I think, I think collaboration is like a great thing. And also when you, in my business, you're always, even if you don't write the thing with somebody, you're always collaborating. I mean, a screenplay is something that's supposed to enlist a bunch of people to want to collaborate with you. I mean, that's the whole point of the screenplay is, here, I'm going to finish this thing. And my hope is that it's going to feel to you like something you want to put all your talents into. You're a director or you're a producer or, I mean, you know, before I was doing those roles, right? You're a costume designer. I want something in there that makes you excited. You're an actor. I want these to be words that you want to say. And then I want to work with you on it. Uh, I want to know what's easy to say. What's not, how can I explain this line to you in a way that makes sense? If it doesn't make sense, how can we make it better? And the more you are in the groove of, of being welcoming and open to that, the more you have a shot at being successful in my business. I mean, it's just a pragmatic thing that to be open to collaboration because even for the most serious auteurs, you're still working with department heads who have to do the production design and have to do the editing with you and all, all that stuff, you know? Yeah. No, and I mean, <laughs> that's the case in restaurants too, for right. sure. I mean, like you and I are aligned on this idea. There's plenty of things that one person could do alone. But I've always found that when you like put your ego aside and like work alongside someone else or a group of people, the end product's also always better. Um, but inevitably, and you talked about this before in your relationship with David, it brings conflict, right? Like working together with other people maybe yields a better result, but it's not necessarily easier. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, but I would say, I would just say that with David, there's very, 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 very little conflict. And because we've always from the beginning had the idea that we're both trying to make the thing we're working on better. So sometimes, and if your attitude is always in a partnership, it's never the other person's fault. It's my fault. Or I can work harder to make it better. That's really good, you know? So that's how we focus on it. Yeah, maybe maybe conflict isn't the right word. Maybe it's tension, which isn't a bad thing. Do you know what I mean? Like two creative people may, but may, creative tension exists. If like when the yeah, then it's about recognizing well, no one's come up with the right good idea yet. If we're both, I don't know, essentially with Dave and me, honestly, when the good idea shows up, I, I would love. I can't. When the good idea shows up, we both jump on it. And, and when there's no good idea, it's just frustrating. It doesn't. It's just exasperating. You, you know what I mean? Conflict in our business comes more when. You have to deal with like a notes process. You know, you have to deal more with people who are external to the creation of it, who then are also collaborating. And that's harder when uh, outsiders, so there are the people you're collaborating with to make the thing, but then there are like movie studio executives or production company executives or outside producers, or there are all sorts of stops along the way where someone can come into it and you have to decide, is this person speaking because they want to speak? Are they speaking because they have a better idea? How do I remember that even if I don't like them, their idea could be good? How do I remember that even if the exact idea they have isn't the perfect idea, there might be something underneath it that's showcasing a problem with what's going on, you know, in your world, in the room. So someone could have a bad experience one night. You could know we did all these things and, and the server could say to you, no, 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 but here are the 10 things I did, but you know, okay, so you did everything we talked about, but something still went wrong. Why? How yeah. can we solve it? But it's, those are where the frustrations really come in. And over time, you have to get better and better at that. You know? Yes. Okay. So, I mean, I think from the outside, when you look at how TV or movies are made, yeah, yeah I think for us, those of us who don't really understand it, it's clear there's the director, the producer, the writer like the main actors, right? Yes. That, there's a collaboration there, but I've gotten to see work and I've gotten to see the way that your stuff works. And okay, there's so many people behind the scenes, right? Many of which oh yeah. no one at home sees. Uh, many right. people, right. maybe you see their name, you don't really know who they are. Yes. And I didn't see it happen explicitly, but I always got the sense that the way you manage the culture in creating your work, that it was a collaboration between everyone. And, and so I want to understand two things. I have two questions. One, like, that doesn't happen on accident. That requires intention. And what do you do to create that culture? And then can you just 
talk about how that's made the show better. Well, I've lived in bad environments. Dave and I have lived creative work-wise. I've never lived in bad environment in my life, thank God. But I've, Dave and I have been on toxic sets. We've been on sets of people who screamed all the time. We've been on sets of people whose insecurities like ran the thing. And then we were on Steven Soderbergh sets and John Dahl sets, and we learned from them. We watched the way they talked to their crew, the way they respected their crew, the way they asked for things from their crew. And we asked a million questions about how. And then the other thing, Will, and you know this better than almost anybody, so much of that stuff just happens in the hiring process. I mean, you hire the best key grip and you hire the best gaffer and they're going to hire the best people in their departments. And then because you've interacted with them through that process and watched them work, you're not giving them orders. You're asking them questions. How do we solve this problem together? And look, everybody at times is not at their best, right? 16 hours into a day, I could tell somebody, hey, that's the wrong shirt. Go fix it. Not in the way that I wish I would. But then it's really important the next day to go like, hey, I think I said that really quickly to you. I know you probably had four shirts there and the actor picked one that I didn't like. Like it's constantly communicating with people so that those things don't really happen. And it's getting out. I mean, it's, it's such basic stuff. Honestly, but that doesn't happen on our show. The thing I said with the shirt, because that's happened to me on independent movies. And so I make it a point, even if I'm tired two days before to look at the email from the costume people with all the shirts that everyone's maybe going to wear. So that two days before, before there's any pressure in a very calm and happy manner, I can be like, Hey, I think this is a good <laughs> shirt. Why do you like that shirt? Like, no. And you know, and then it's like, Oh, well, here's why I think the character would do that. It's like, okay, I don't think that guy looks good in that color, but I love your idea actually. So can you find, like, then it's like, wow, that's a great process, right? And so the more you do the work ahead of time, the more you're, you're prepared. It goes back to the thing I said, do, do, it's all on you. So do everything you can to put yourself in a position to make the environment a great one. And then yes, what happens is when someone walks on a set, they feel good and they want to be there to work and they want everyone else to have a good time. So you do your, you know, and they want the work to be better. I mean, this stuff is, I've been at this a really long time, Dave and I have. So you just try not to repeat your mistakes and you try to um, hire people who will have the same kind of attitude with their departments under you and who will meet you in that spirit of collaboration. Yeah, you say it's basic stuff. And I think when you get it, it is, but there's a lot of people who don't do it, right? So it's not that basic. Uh, well, basic's maybe the wrong word. What I mean is thinking about the end result and then backing up a bunch of steps and thinking about what has to happen for us to show up on the set and for everything to sort of be as it's supposed to be when we're there. Because then you can be open to the spirit of collaboration that happens in the moment, right? So then you're standing on set and the actor's in the right wardrobe because you've hired we did we are the best customer in New York and you've hired, uh, you know, the, all the right people to light them and shoot them. So then you're standing on the stage and you're rehearsing and all you're worried about now is focusing on what's going to happen in front of the camera. How are we going to capture it? How are we going to be open to surprise? Oh, these two lines can be cut. Ah, I can think of something new because I'm able to be in a state of flow with, with them and collaborating and, and sort of being in this dance together because I'm not distracted by a whole bunch of bullshit that's coming late in the process. And, and I think there's a direct parallel to the restaurant thing in, in that, to how the night's supposed to go once the doors are open. No, for sure. What, one thing you just said though, and I've never really thought about it this way. We talk about, like, I worked for Danny Meyer for years, the whole tenants of hospitality, take care of your staff. And then they're going to turn around and take care of other people. We can't serve everyone ourselves. So you better make sure that the people that are serving the people know what it feels like to be taken care of. But yes. you said it in a way, collaboration starts not by actually engaging the creative energy of the people you're managing, but about making the workplace something that they love so much that they feel compelled to want to invest in it. Yes. And yeah. I think that's really powerful. But well, I think... Then also, also, then when you're in tough spots, it like our, I keep mentioning our key gear and our gaffer because they're, they're famously like the best guys in the business and they really, the crew looks to them. But that means because we're all there in the right spirit and those guys are so fucking committed, 
you know, I can go up to them very openly and go, help us out of a jam. You know, this is the time we have. How would you solve the problem? And it's not weakness from a leader, it's strength from a leader. And they're not feel, you know, and it's like, all right, I'm gonna follow what, what you say it, because I know they're they're not trying to just get out of there quickly. They're trying to help me shoot the show the best way possible in the time we have and with the resources we have. In order for that to be the case, they have to feel that I'm in there, that I'm there with their best interest too, that we're all in the thing together. And that's you do, you know, you gotta work on that all the time. You but just, how you were able to do your special surprises, you know, EMP in the day, because people were, you got people in a state of flow, your staff, so that they were able, they understood how to do their jobs so well that they were able to be open to experience what was going to happen in the moment. And you empowered them to do that. Well, yeah. And I mean, listen, the more of a sense of ownership you give to people in determining what their day looks like or what stuff they get to do, the more inclined they're going to be to do whatever it takes to make that night a good service. But you said something, you said something a minute ago that, again, it, it feels so obvious, but I think a lot of people don't get it. Like, there are a lot of people out there. And by the way, I went through this. I think most people do as they're learning to lead who think that being a great leader means always having the answer. It does not mean saying to someone, hey, I'm not sure what the right solution is here. What do you think? It means that they always have to come up with something. And you said, no, asking the question doesn't make you a weak leader. It makes you a strong leader. Can you do- Not asking the question out of panic, not asking the question like, like, you know, but asking the question like, we're in this together. I'm, I actually want to hand you the authority here because you, there's an aspect of this that you know better than I do or a new perspective on it. What would you do? How can we, how can we solve this together? And that might mean asking a cinematographer. It might mean asking an episodic director. It might mean asking, and, and I'll say this, the answer that comes back from somebody, in the end, David and I might decide to do something else. But that can't always be, right? What has to happen is your dialogue has to be such with people that they know you're genuinely asking them, that you know you're going to find the best solution for the moment and do it, and it may be their answer, and it may be an answer someone else comes up with, or their answer may prompt you to come up with a different solution, and you circle back with them. I mean, I hate that corporate speaker circling back, but you do, you go back and you go, hey, here's how we're gonna do this. That makes sense to you? Here's why. And they go, great, Roger, on it, Paul. You know, it's just like, that's, it just takes years and all of us fuck it up. I don't wanna sound, I'm sure that I can do better all the time. We, all of us can do better all the time. You're constantly working on how to be better at this stuff. But I will tell you, I think about it. I think about it and I every day try my best to do that stuff, to offload all the decision-making to people who are competent and capable and keep the decisions that absolutely have to be made by David and me because that's why, they're, that's why we're, we're there to make certain decisions. But the ones that we don't have to make, what a joy to give those to other people. What do you think it's communicating to someone who works for you? who looks up to you, you're the, you're the person they came to work for. When you go up to them and you're like, hey, I wanna, I'm interested in how you would do this. Well, I think it, it, you know, Avatar, a lot of people have problems with that movie Avatar, I love it. And what I love is that whole idea of being seen. All people want is to truly be seen. They wanna be seen in their truest light, how they see themselves. They wanna know you're recognizing them. And that, it makes people feel recognized. It makes them feel heard and seen, and it makes them feel engaged in the mission. I love that. I also, by the way, you said something before that I, I'm the exact same way. I try to be the best version of myself. I fail often. And especially in the early years of Love Madison Park, I was, a little, I was younger, I was a little more fiery. I would maybe come down on people harder than I wanted to. And I'd end every night, I'd go home, I'd sit down with a pad and paper and a pen, have a glass of red wine, and write down the people who I needed to go and apologize to the next day. Sure. Yeah. And there's something really powerful in, well, A, just giving yourself time to reflect on where you succeeded that day and where you failed. And then taking the time to say, hey, yesterday, by the way, the message I was communicating, I still agree with. The way I communicated it with was not great. Yeah, you just try to get you try to get better all the time, and and you try to be aware that everyone's. I say something I've realized as I've gotten older, is to just take a minute and understand it's possible somebody's having a really bad day. Like, 
no matter what we're working on, it's really not more important than their bad day if something really bad's happened in their lives. And so just keeping your antenna up is all. So that means if you have people working under you who are really plugged in to what's going on, take time enough to ask and listen. Because as you know, the people who swim in your wake, Will, they know who's having a rough time at home, whose wife or husband is ill or left them. They have all this information, right? They're not going to burden you with that information unless you look to them, in which case they're going to tell you what you need to know to help. And it's better to hear that shit before you've just like uh, given someone shit for not getting their job done. And uh, so another thing is you, tr- you want to create an environment where people can come to you. That, honestly, that and, and you have the good people around you. So it's not that people are coming to you every five minutes with some bullshit. I'm talking about real stuff, but there is always real stuff. Like there's always something real happening somewhere on your team that if you know about it, you can be more human, better, and help people solve. You might not be able to help their home life, but what you can do is maybe make their day a little bit better. Let them know, hey, if you need a half hour or you need something, that's go, go take what you need and come back and be ready to go. Like there's all sorts of ways. So David and I are, are always trying to have our antenna up, always trying to listen, always trying to listen to the people who are closer to the ground and be there to help if we can. Again, imperfect science. Sure, I fuck it up all the time, but it's another thing to be aware of. Yeah, it's a pursuit. I'll tell you, the reason why we we initially, I mean, collaboration is something we talk about in the restaurant business all the time. I think the reason that it bears even more importance now than it ever has is because I feel like, you know, we're in a we're in this season of reinvention right now, whether it's in the culture of our industry, whether it's how we treat each other, whether it's how people are paid, or honestly, it, whether it's just in our desire to survive, right? And it sometimes is going to be the craziest, most ridiculous idea that comes from the craziest and most ridiculous place that actually gives people like the ability to survive. Yeah. And so what we're saying is, hey, it shouldn't just be like the two or three people at the top that's in charge of brainstorming. Like if you can engage the collective brain power of every single person in the restaurant to help move you forward, do you look back on on some of like your creative pursuits, some of the amazing things that you've put into the world and remember a time when someone super unlikely on the team like really impacted it in a way that... Yes, of course. You're always... I mean, it happens all the time. Honestly, it happens all the time on Billions where an assistant will notice something in a script that if we would have left it in there, it's like, well, that doesn't make sense because in episode four of whatever season, this thing happened and you're just... You're like, oh my God, you just saved us such a hassle like later on in, in the editing room. But I'll say that part of being, uh, that part of, of uh, I've always been pretty good at that part of letting people know that the good idea is welcome anywhere if they're on the team. So even when I was like young in the record business, an assistant I had, I, my job was like to listen to a lot of demo tapes and, and I'd gone through a bunch of tapes really quickly and, and this assistant came in the next day and she was like, you missed this. You got to listen to this come here, listen to this tape. And it ended up being this guy who wrote a whole bunch of hit songs and I owned his publishing and um, I gave her a percentage of it because I was like, you're, you went so far uh, uh, beyond your thing that on a handshake deal, I said, you know, you'll have a small percentage of anything I make from this person for the rest of my life. And I, you know, it was 30 years ago and I still, the checks are very small now that I get, but she gets a percentage of those checks still to this day. <laughs> But that's I, that was not the industry standard. I just felt like, well, that came out of nowhere, what she did. I'm giving her that. And she took a risk, by the way. Yeah, she Most did. Most people don't feel comfortable saying to their boss, hey, you you messed up. And yeah, she said, I think you went too fast. Go listen to this. Here's why. What she had done was reached out to that guy. So she'd reached out to that guy and said, send me more music because she had a feeling. She got more stuff from him, came in, and then she said all that to me. I had this feeling, I reached out, here's what it is, here's what he looks like, here's the thing. And then I had her sit down and we listened. I was like, you're so right about this. And I flew up and that, like, and the whole thing happened. And, and, um, and that was a great lesson. I was super young when that happened. She was five years older than me, I think. I was like 23. And that was a great lesson because that showed me, like that can happen from any quarter, you know. But no, honestly, I've never thought about it this way either. 
she could have been wrong, right? She yeah, she could have made a mistake. You could have listened to it. And so invariably, even within just a two-person team, you instilled a culture where I'm not going to get mad at you for making a mistake if your heart's in the right place. And that gave her the confidence. At 23, I'll say that day, I'll say at 23, yes, I got on really well with that person. I respected the hell out of her. I'm sure at 23, man, I was moving so fast. At 23, you don't know always. I was always nice to my assistants, actually. But, you know, at that time, I was definitely impatient with uh, like promotion people whose job it was to get the records played. I would be, and they might be executives who were actually on my level or higher up in the, in the chain. You know, I might've been a manager level or director level, and they might've been a vice president level, but I still was super impatient then not understanding. No, no, you got to enlist them. They have 4,000 things they're trying to do. And it's not enough to say this is good. Like you have to find a way if you're collaborating with these people to actually understand what they're going through. Like what's their day look like? Like if you were in their shoes, what would you want to hear from the, how would the 23 year old help you do your job as opposed to just demand that you do your job? I didn't know that shit at 23. I, I learned that shit in my thirties and forties, you know? Yeah. I mean, one of the consistencies here and you're, you're, you're not even in the hospitality business, but you're articulating it really, you're creating this link between collaboration and compassion. And I've never thought about those two words like so being so inextricably linked before. They are. You're right. That's beautiful, man. Yeah, because, yeah, no, you're exactly right. Well, it goes back to like, you know, don't blame. Look, we all want to blame. When we feel when we feel insecure and when we feel like we might be the one disappointing ourselves or someone else, we blame people a lot in relation. To, I mean, think about the bad breakups you've had. I mean, a lot of it is like, You've let, you know that you've let someone down in some way and you, so you, you don't even mean to, but you kind of lashed out. And the more you can like look at yourself, the, that doesn't mean, you know, blame yourself or take abuse. Like, let's be clear. But it means first look at yourself, then look around at the rest. First, make yourself the best version of yourself you can. Again, it's all a fucking work in progress. And I, I'm not proselytizing. I'm talking about things that I, on a daily basis, work on. And that's part of having a meditation practice and a journaling practice. If you journal every day, which I do, and if you meditate every day, which I do, and if you, you know, exercise, take long walks, you're forced to contemplate, you're forced to confront yourself. And if you confront yourself openly, you then will work on bettering yourself so that you're better to the people that you're engaging with on a daily basis. That again, it doesn't mean you never, you never fall short. I, I don't want to create a false sense. We all fall short but I, you just work on it. All any of us can ask the other guy or the other woman or the other uh, gender non-binary person is like, just work on yourself. Like I'll try to work on myself. You try to work on yourself. And then when we meet, let's try our best to make this, this event uh, the best that it, that it can be. I love that. Okay. I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but okay. Our, the listeners out there, most of them are hospitality people. Yes. You're a hospitality guy. You love the industry. By the way, my yeah. name is spelled K-O-P-P-E-L-M-A-N if I show up on your reservation and saying it for listening. <laughs> Put that in the computers. Put it in the computers. Swanier, VIP, SFN. What do you, just what words do you have for them? Like a, a good takeaway, something like yeah. this is a moment of adversity. Honestly, you're rock stars. You are rock stars. And you have the potential to make somebody's night amazing. You have the potential to give somebody memories. We can all close our eyes and remember nights that were completely changed by what happened to us in a restaurant, by the way a waiter or a waitress or server or maitre d' or chef did something or created a vibe that allowed magic to happen. You have the capacity to do that, whether you're in a pizza, whether you're Anthony Mangieri, I don't know Pizza Napolitana, and your way of doing that is to show so much reverence for your, for your craft that you don't even look at me, hmm. or whether you're Will Godara, whose mission is to make me feel personally special from the moment I walk in the door. But either of those things are great if you're true to yourself and true to it, and if your whole restaurant serves that vibe. So I walk into Una Pizza Napolitana and I mean, Anthony's my good friend, but that, but before he was my good friend, he was this figure. He was this guy whose mission was to craft the perfect pizza, not a good pizza, not the best pizza I'm going to have that week, but that's a dude who's trying to make the best pizza in the entire fucking world 
with every single pie is a learning experience for him. And you saw that when you were in that little restaurant, the first one, you saw a guy studying and thinking about what happened when he put that thing in the oven and when he put that olive oil on it afterwards. And that's all you wanted, man. You, and you left that place and all night long, all you could do was talk about the pizza, what that guy's, the intensity on that guy's face, the mission of that whole restaurant. And if you're in the restaurant business in any capacity, every night you have the chance to give people an incredible gift. And I have complete reverence and respect for it. Thank you so much, man. I love you. Thank you, my brother. Thank you so much for joining us. And a special thanks to the incredibly generous sponsors who give us the resources to not only create this content, but to deliver it to you. Perhaps the greatest gift is that they've given us the opportunity to connect with you here, even during a season when we're unable to connect with you in person. Those are our friends and partners at American Express, at Resi, and at Sam Pellegrino. We appreciate you all so much. That catchy music you hear, that's by our friend Aaron Ratier. He's amazing. Check him out. And to the team at the Welcome Conference, who's been working so hard this year. Obviously, Anthony Rudolph and Brian Canlis, who you see alongside me on stage. But then Aaron Ginsberg, who's been running the show with a ton of support by Sandra DiCapua. There's a lot to be thankful for, even during a time that feels so challenging. We look forward to seeing you back here next week. And if you want to check up on us and see what we're up to, go to welcomeconference.org. It's the weekly special. You do, 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 do. Weekly special. Weekly special. The weekly special. What?